Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 1156, air date December 28, 2022. A number of executives have expressed interest in being the next CEO of social media giant Twitter. One of them is Dr. Shiva Ayadurai, who's a PhD from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Here is a tweet from him where he expressed interest in joining and becoming the next CEO of Twitter. It says, Dear Mr. Musk, and he tagged Elon Musk, I am interested in the CEO position of Twitter. I have four degrees from MIT and have created seven successful high-tech software companies. Kindly advise of the process to apply. Sincerely, Dr. Shiva Ayadurai, MIT PhD, and of course, uh, tags uh, the inventor of email. He were joined now from Cambridge, Massachusetts by Dr. Shiva, uh, who calls himself the inventor of email. Scientist, technologist, is an innovator, author, entrepreneur, chairman, and CEO of Cytosolve, Inc. Uh, good morning, sir. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Um, so I, I do want, before we get to Twitter, I do want us to address this uh, issue of email uh, that's been going back and forth, whether you were the original um, creator or if it's the uh, deceased uh, Mr. Tomlinson, can you can you clear this up for us as far as your side as to who created the email? Well, there's no controversy that I invented email. In 1978, I was the first to convert the entire inner office mail system, you know, the inbox, outbox folders, the entire paper-based system into the electronic version. I was the first to name that system email, and I was the first to get the United States copyright on August 30th, 1982, officially recognizing me as the inventor of email at a time when copyright was the only way to protect software inventions. The real issue is why is Ray Tomlinson even called the inventor of email? Because all he did was write in 15 minutes of code a caveman version of Red it. The real question is why is there this controversy? And I believe this leads back to something that others have actually called me, and we'll talk about that. It leads back to this issue of white supremacy, to think that all great in in inventions must come from the military industrial complex and frankly, white people. And that's where this comes from. The facts of this are so obvious, there's not even a gray area here. It's black and white that I invented email as a 14-year-old kid in Newark, New Jersey, before I came to MIT. And that also bothers people because this was done before MIT. Everyone thinks that you have to go to MIT or Harvard, and then you get anointed as an inventor. But the facts are black and white on this. Ray Tomlinson did not invent email. And to be clear, I've never said I invented electronic messaging, which dates back to Samuel Morse you know, in the 1800s. I invented the system email as we know and use it today, period. All right, all right. And now, John, just one more. The, the, the New York Times, when Tomlinson passed away, the New York Times wrote an obituary and they mentioned him as the creator of email. So you would dispute that New York Times obituary? Well, go look at what CBS wrote and go look at what Time Magazine wrote. The bottom line is the New York Times is conflating electronic messaging with email. And you have to understand that Ray Tomlinson and the at symbol was used by Raytheon, one of the largest military companies, when they were getting into the cybersecurity market, falsely branding themselves as the inventors of email. The CEO of Raytheon actually wrote a book on integrity and found out the entire book was plagiarized. So, you know, the New York Times has written a lot of uh, fake news for many, many years, and this is another example of it. 
All right, gotcha. So I would dispute that, of course, about the New York Times writing fake news, but no, no, we'll, no problem. We'll, we'll move on to the next uh, question here. So you have multiple degrees. You've, you know, you, you'd say you've invented at least what we know as email. Why are you applying for the job for a Twitter CEO? Why, why do you want to take on that role? Well, look, beyond the invention of email, many of the other creations beyond all those degrees, um, I've also been a fighter for free speech and protecting the First Amendment since I was 17 years old. It was my lawsuit on, on October uh, 30th of 2020, two years ago, when I was running for United States Senate, and I had criticized the government for deleting ballot images, violating federal law in Massachusetts, that I was deplatformed from Twitter. This is in uh, starting on October 30th, 2020. In that lawsuit, it was my lawsuit where I represented myself against seven lawyers that we discovered that the government of the United States has a portal to Twitter where it allows the government to do an end run around the First Amendment. This was long before the Twitter files. And what's unfortunate is all of the quote unquote conservative media grifters now talking about Twitter files concealed what we discovered back in 2020. But it was our lawsuit that discovered the government portal into Twitter. And I believe that as long as that government portal exists, not only to Twitter and to all social media companies, there is no First Amendment in the United States. So you're looking at someone who's not only an inventor and a creator and a technologist, but actually someone who's deeply passionate and has been an activist on the ground and defended the First Amendment over and over and over again. And that's why I believe that Twitter deserves a CEO who not just in words, but in deeds has fought the first fought for the First Amendment. And just to be clear, 2020, that was during the Trump administration, yes? This was, well, I, you know, this was in September of 2020 in the primary. We discovered this long before Trump. You know, frankly, I've been also critical of Trump. Trump has talked about, you know, government censorship and election fraud. But if you actually look at it, Trump is the one who signed into law CISA, which actually implemented that government infrastructure to censor speech. So both Republicans and Democrats have been behind this in the United States. And uh, it's basically the working people in this country who really need to get together to recognize that free speech has been dismantled with the advent of these portals and government big tech uh, censorship relationships. Now, how would you bring back advertisers to Twitter? Um, how would you make the company profit? Because this, this matter of free speech with what we've seen Elon Musk uh, discuss, um, I mean, it, it shows that advertisers have been, have been um, pushed away. So if you're an advocate for free speech, how do, you bring, how do you make advertisers comfortable to come back to the platform? And uh, I mean, we're looking at a chart here, Twitter's ad management desktop visits by month. This is from, uh, I think, the, uh, from SimilarWeb, which was published in the Wall Street Journal. Um, and yeah, it shows the drop. So how would you bring them back and make the company profitable? Yeah, it's a great question. Look. Um, if you go back to the fundamental history of these platforms, right, infrastructure for speech, go back to 1787, when the founders of the United States created the First Amendment, they created concomitantly with that something very, very powerful that many people have forgotten about, the United States Postal Service. Now, even though at that time it was on paper, the, the principles of the Postal Service were that every individual, free speech would equal free reach, could communicate with every other individual. The Postal Service was quite an amazing infrastructure. In 1997, when email volume overtook postal mail volume, I, as the inventor of email, went to the Postal Service executives and I said, you must create a public infrastructure for email because private companies were owning people's email. So why do I bring this up? 
You see, ultimately, Twitter as a public square is never going to be successful for free speech because of Section 230 immunity. The government actually tells Twitter and regulates Twitter in a very fundamental way. That's why they get their high valuation, you know, 10x of revenue. So the only way to balance free speech to actually deliver free speech and the promise of what this public square is supposed to be is in many ways to make Twitter a public infrastructure. And I believe that many, many people, given the pervasiveness of Twitter, may even pay a very small amount, you know, 10 bucks a year. And that's how you actually generate revenue. To rely on large corporations to fund this public square is antithetical to the foundations of free speech. Okay, so that, that 10 bucks a year, isn't that similar to the $8 a month that Elon Musk is uh, pushing with Twitter Blue? Yeah, but he's doing that only for a certain category of people, right? You have to be a certain strata of people to get the Twitter Blue account. My model is that you give it to everyone. When you send a little postal mail, it's an agreement that's been made. Like in the United States, for example, every letter that's transmitted is protected by the U.S. Postal Service's very powerful foundation, which a lot of people have forgotten about, called a police force, which makes sure that any letter that's open, people can get 22 uh, years in prison. The encryption, all of these aren't gonna solve that. We need to make Twitter a truly public square, in many ways for First Amendment for all people throughout the world, not just the United States. You know, only 4% of the world today experiences the First Amendment. Most of the Commonwealth countries, Europe, UK, do not believe in the First Amendment. So imagine if Twitter could actually be a platform for delivering real free speech to all the world. Right now, what happens is every government essentially forces Twitter to do these agreements so they actually spy and surveil people. And you have to wonder, you know, Elon Musk, if you look at his entire foundation of his revenue structure, you know, where Elon Musk begins and where government ends, very few people know. So we have to break from that and essentially create an environment where Twitter, Twitter truly becomes a public square financially as well as, you know, politically. All right, great stuff. Uh, Dr. Shiva, I've got a, about a minute to go here. You really seem really emphasizing free speech, but what about innovation, new products and new, you know, services that can draw people to Twitter to entice them to pay that $10 a year that you're, um, you know, proposing? As if you had to get the job as CEO, what are the innovations? innovations have you thought about, will you, will you roll those out to bring people to Twitter in addition to the free speech part? Well, look, one of the most important things is that the entire infrastructure of Twitter itself must be decentralized at a fundamental level. All of these platforms, if you look at it, when the internet first came to being in 1990, or the web came into being in 1993, it was a profound event, but the goal was each one of us would have our own infrastructures. We'd build our own websites, right? It was, you know, there's a book that I wrote many years ago because I also have a degree in art, arts and the internet. This was in 93. And the idea that I was sharing with people was the internet would really eliminate gatekeepers. What's happened starting in 2000, you had the consolidation of content, Facebook, you know, with Google and now with Twitter. One of the foundational things that I would do is to make sure the actual infrastructure of Twitter is highly decentralized, which means servers, capabilities are literally decentralized across communities and that it is integrated with what I call WiMAX and mesh network. So Twitter then becomes a framework for a network of the people by the people. All right, uh, Dr. Shiva, we, we wish you the best of luck in your application. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to us and we appreciate your time. Thank you.